my goal is not to kill a purchase of a project. My goal when I go out is to identify the project's issues beyond cosmetic. Cosmetic is easiest. It's the easiest thing to fix. Everybody loves it. Mine is, you know, look at the phase one, phase two reports. You know, what, what do we want to do here at the end? How do we want to finish it? So when I go out, I look at if the present ownership will provide it, all the service reports for the last two, three years, uh, if I can get that. If I can get that, I can definitely tell just on paper what their problems are. You know, if they, you know, have clogs in their toilets or, you know, in the sinks and everything every month, well, you know, they may have some corrosion. They may have this. They're, if their water bill exceeds their gas bill, you know, oh, you probably have a leak. You have pinhole leaks. You have this, that. So there's all kinds of things I can look for based on the service report. Because when I'm out there to do the due diligence and I physically go there, I walk with the service manager. I usually don't walk with the managers, you know, unless they want me to, you know, but again, we don't own the property yet, but I'll walk with the service guy and I'll just talk to him and I'll ask him questions. I have 20 questions I have that I ask the property and the service guys, you know, and biggest challenges. And I try to become his like sounding board you know, what's your biggest frustration? You know, then they'll tell me, you know, and, oh, we got to replace the doors all the time. Well, then I'll start looking at the structure of the building. Why is this leading? Why is this, you know, what's going on here? Look at the foundations. Uh, sometimes I don't get the service guy. So I have to go and look. And I look for the major stuff. I look for the roof. You know, I look for the building and how, you know, like I said, how the windows shape up you know is it you know is there any cross siding in the windows or the doors which tells me there's a foundation or some kind of issue i look for the major stuff i'm not there to kill it and i you know and i'm very upfront if i'm sitting in the owner's office i'm the guy always delivering bad news you know so it's a matter of okay you may have to invest you know two or three million this is what you want to do this is what you're going to have to do first you know your system's failing it's at the end of its life says that in the PN, you know, the PNA or whatever it is. It says it in there, but I'm looking at it and the thing's corroded. You're gonna have to dump $150,000 right away to fix that, you know, before you do anything, it's, that's falling apart. So systems are a big thing. I identify everything that's not seen and nobody likes that because everything I do is everything that's not seen. They have all, I'm gonna make it look pretty. I'm gonna put a new cabinets and counters in. That's great. Flooring, paint the walls, awesome. I go, you can't get water out of this thing. And so, I don't, you know, it's, sorry. <laughs> You're going to have to tear out and spend a half a million dollars on plumbing because it's galvanized and it's 50 years old. Okay. Welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, we got a party in the house. We got Andrea, my prior co-host. We got Dane, my prior co-host. And best of all, we have George Flosky on today. This guy has managed renovation of over a billion dollars in assets. And we are definitely in for a treat today to learn from this legend here. He has been this Senior Vice President of Development for JXC Partners. And he's going to bring a wealth of experience today, all about affordable housing, construction, renovation, uh, you guys are really in for a treat. So, George, welcome to the show, man. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get even get into real estate, man? Well, I think I'm a legend just because I'm old. So uh, that, <laughs> that, that's what that's the start of this. But uh, real estate, I, I, it happened. You know, I, I went to a school for chemistry. Actually, 
what they call P chemistry, uh, physical chemistry. And it wasn't for me. And I ended up working for a company a long time ago called Toys R Us. And I ended up working within their facilities department. And then I started working for their construction department. And I've been involved in that ever since. I did industrial buying for a company called Petco, which everybody probably knows. Um, uh, I also did work with oh, uh, AIMCO, which was a large, very large real estate company. You know, they've split into AIMCO and AIR now, but uh, I built the Lincoln Place property, if anybody knows, in Venice. It's uh, about a, I don't know, $300, $350 million project that was uh, historical renovation, ground up work, uh, affordable housing, and conventional housing. Uh, it's probably the largest property in Venice. So if anybody has a chance to go to Venice, California, you can look it up also. Uh, but that's... Wow. And what I a guess. what a resume. I mean, I can tell why I like you already. Toys R Us was one of my favorite stores growing up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I got pictures of me with Jeffrey the giraffe, you know, so it's okay. <laughs> um, but also then I got recruited away from Amcult from by GHC and um, executive recruiters, you know, they they try to get somebody and it was a really an opportunity to go work with um, some very good people and excellent people and it's on the affordable side, for the most part, there are, you know, some conventional assets on them, but it is primarily affordable. And it was a new experience for me. What we did there was, you know, we did what was called an occupied renovation, which is we never moved anybody out. And that's basically how I ended up here. So. Wow. Occupied renovations. I mean, like it, it sounds very complex when you talk about the affordable housing side, when we got on a call, just early before this podcast recording, you and I talked a little bit about like there's tons of elements involved in the affordable side that naturally makes things a little bit more difficult. Um, George, maybe you could just start by helping the audience understand a little bit difference between like, hey, what is the difference between like the construction and renovation process for a multifamily deal versus an affordable housing deal that might deal with Section 8 or tax credit initiatives there? Well, there's different criteria within those. When you talk about um, when you have a conventional, uh, you have control of your entire project. You know, you, the ownership developer, whoever it may be, has control of the entire project. When you go into affordable, depending on what it is, tax credit, you have time limits, you have material requirements. Uh, you know, you have, um, like I said, you have to do an occupied renovation for the most part, unless and then otherwise you lose income because you move everybody out and it's, a government qualification process. So um, the complexities are variable based on what the project is and what funding you are getting uh, from HUD or a tax credit. It's, you know, there's projects that I've done that have started in February, but your tax credit has to be completed by the end of the year. They don't care how big it is. They don't care if you're doing a $20 million remodel. December 1st it has to be done and built. Uh, December 31st, it has to be done and built. So tax credits are very, very complex in the fact that your time frames shrink. You have commitment of materials within any kind of affordable housing. There are certain materials they require as a minimum standard. So you have to make sure you meet those standards. That being said, any kind of value engineering, and Dane probably knows about this, you've got to do upfront 
as you do your due diligence. You can't, after the fact, go, oh, there's a cheaper way to do this. Nope. You, you're committed. That's what you have to do. You're done. <laughs> so, so you have all those different variables within. Um, but again, it's basically control is really what it comes down to between the two. If George is a is a legend, uh, Kent, then I'm a legend in the making because I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm the second oldest uh, individual here. <laughs> and for, for the listeners who don't know, Kent and Andrea came out to Ohio all within, I think it was within a week of each other, and I never felt older. So <laughs> oh, my God. George always makes fun of me for being such a youngling. He's like, oh, you've got time to do so many things in life. <laughs> and Pretty it, much. It's like, yeah, time to make any mistakes you want. I made them all already, so I'm done. So I've learned from them. You so, feel like this job will age you at some point. You're like, oh, do I ever get tired of it? But if, if you really love what you're doing, I feel like you don't get tired of it. Um, you might need help along the way because there's just so much to do. And I feel like that's probably the main reason why we brought you on the podcast is because I wanted to share with the guys what a legend you are, you know, in oh, terms God. of how much you know. But it's also because you understand the process start to finish of any kind of a maybe acquisition, refinance, disposition of a project. So um, can you walk us through what that process is with the acquisition side? I mean, when you when we're first about to acquire a property, you know what are your barking orders? Who do you meet with on site? What reports do you need with you when we're initially looking at a project? Well, most of the projects will begin with, of course, ownership or the developer, or, uh, the group, or the you know, finance. They find a property they want to purchase or they want to build or whatever it may be. For this, for the sake of this conversation, we'll just say it's an existing building. It's a renovation. And they want to purchase it and keep it as affordable housing or convert it to affordable housing or whatever they would like to do. So the process starts with the finance people, you know, the negotiation. Once they get into a dollar figure that they are close with, with whoever wants to sell it, you know, then at that point they start their due diligence, you know. Um, and Andrea, you know this, you've had to order reports and all that stuff, you know, PCA reports, all this stuff. And guys, I may throw out, you guys might know all the acronyms. I literally have a spreadsheet of all the affordable housing acronyms. There's over 500. So if you ask me what that means, don't count on me knowing. I just know what it is, <laughs> you know, whatever it may be, you know, the phase one. So literally you can go and pull all the acronyms if you want. Um, but when you start that, you start that process. That's very initial process, you know, it could take months, could take, you know, four months, six months before they decide on, okay, we are going to purchase this property, the financing, whoever's going to do it, you know, whatever bank or whatever it may be, they're approached, you know, HUD, they're approached, whatever, you know, that may be, you know, if it's over 5 million, it's all different, light tech, tax credit bond. It, it really depends on how they decide to approach that financing and how they want to go through it. Once they've established that, there are criterias within that um, financing that we have to meet and we also have to meet federal and we have to meet state requirements, you know, so we'll have all that up front. We know it's, it's not that difficult. The biggest thing about it is then the due diligence starts. And this is where you go out and you look at a property and Dane knows he's said he's bought some debilitating properties. And, you know, we know a lot of that going through. That's the reason why at the end of a, you know, 
an affordable housing 10 year, 15 year or whatever it is, 20 year, people decide to sell it and they can. And the property is usually in pretty rough shape. It is, that's because they don't want to dump in four or $5 million and fix it up. So at that point I go in and when I do it is the banks already looked at it. They have all this list. They've come up with, you know, a 142 page report that I actually read. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody else actually, Andrea may read it, but I actually read it <laughs> to go through it. And then I go to the property. There's and, so much to find out. <laughs> <laughs> so on, on this report, you know, they have life sex, you have all this stuff. My goal is not to kill a purchase of a project. My goal when I go out is to identify the project's issues beyond cosmetic. Cosmetic is easiest. It's the easiest thing to fix. Everybody loves it. Mine is, you know, look at the phase one, phase two reports. You know, what, what do we want to do here at the end? How do we want to finish it? So when I go out, I look at if the present ownership will provide it, all the service reports for the last two, three years. Uh, if I can get that, if I can get that, I can definitely tell just on paper what their problems are. You know, if they, you know, have clogs in their toilets or, you know, in the sinks and everything every month. Well, you know, they may have some corrosion. They may have this there. If their water bill exceeds their gas bill, you know, oh, you probably have a leak, you have pinhole leaks, you have this, that. So there's all kinds of things I can look for based on the service report. Because when I'm out there to do the due diligence and I physically go there, I walk with the service manager. I usually don't walk with the managers, you know, unless they want me to, you know, the, Again, we don't own the property yet, but I'll walk with the service guy and I'll just talk to him and I'll ask him questions. I have 20 questions I have that I ask the property and the service guys, you know, and biggest challenges. And I try to become his like sounding board. You know, what's your biggest frustration? You know, then they'll tell me, you know, and oh, we got to replace the doors all the time. Well, then I'll start looking at the structure of the building. Why is this leading? Why is this, you know, what's going on here? Look at the foundations. Uh, sometimes I don't get the service guy. So I have to go and look and I look for the major stuff. I look for the roof, you know, I look uh, for the building and how, you know, like I said, how the windows shape up, you know, is it, you know, is there any cross siding in the windows or the doors, which tells me there's a foundation or some kind of issue. I look for the major stuff. I'm not there to kill it. And I, you know, and I'm very upfront. If I'm sitting in the owner's office, I'm the guy always delivering bad news. You know, so it's a matter of, okay, you may have to invest, you know, two or three million. This is what you want to do. This is what you're going to have to do first. You know, your system's failing. It's at the end of its life. It says that in the PN, you know, the PNA or whatever it is. It says it in there, but I'm looking at it and the thing's corroded. You're going to have to dump $150,000 right away to fix that, you know, before you do anything. It's, that's falling apart. So systems are a big thing. I identify everything that's not seen. And nobody likes that because everything I do is everything that's not seen. They have all, I'm going to make it look pretty. I'm going to put new cabinets and counters in. That's great. Flooring, paint the walls. Awesome. I go, you can't get water out of this thing. So, I don't, you know, it's sorry. <laughs> You're going to have to tear out and spend a half million dollars on plumbing because it's galvanized and it's 50 years old. <laughs> what do you want to do? So it's, it's those issues and those are the tough conversations. And I don't have a problem having them. You know, I'm always the one that has to deliver. If you don't hear from me ever, 
that's always good news. You're in budget, you're on fine, you're good. If you hear from me, it's a problem. So nobody likes talking to me. So, so are those um, service reports able to tell you all the capital expenditures we're going to anticipate for a renovation? Or is it any other reports you need to anticipate what are the potential capital expenditures? Uh, basically, when I get, uh, you know, there's the PCNA, there's PCA, there's, you know, the phase one and phase two for all the lead and everything. So that tells me how much additional costs are. Um, every report that I get is a value. It, it's not, in my mind, a waste of money. Everything tells me something. And again, I can't write everything down I look for. I'll just, I'll go through a report and I'll just make notes. Okay, this tells me I need to look for whatever. Uh could be something on their heating side, you know, when all your gas costs exceed your electrical costs, there's this problem, you know, when just on the, you know, if I can get a PL, PL tells me a lot, um, breaks it down for me. Uh, utilities are a big thing, tells me everything. And then I get into the area of the country wherever we're doing the purchase. This is again on the due diligence. You have new codes. Some of the codes, you can grandfather in based on the purchase. Some you can't, depends on municipality. Now everybody is going green and the purchase of a new building, they would put you under some kind of green requirement that they may have. These are very interesting. They're different in every state. Um, we just finished uh, when we did Denver, you know, they have a green roof initiative, you know, and then they have this, you know, they have to put in a, three foot fence barrier around, you know, anything over 12 stories and all this stuff. And they want that stuff enforced, but there's also things you can do to get around it. You know, if you tint the windows, if you do whatever it may be, windows are a big thing for the mere fact that window heights now, you know, there's a certain requirement. There's window restrictions. A lot of the older buildings, you don't have that window high enough. So there's all kinds of requirements. You have to, HUD requires you to AC or provide AC for, you know, their affordable housing units. Well, can your electrical handle it? Where's that AC going to plug into if it's going to be like a window unit? Does that electrical outlet can handle it? You know, what do you have to do? Do you have to upgrade it? A lot of unknowns. So a lot of it's dictated by what HUD's going to require, um, what the tax credit's going to require for the area. And then, you know, we go from there because your rent is reflective of what you provide. So there's always that cost analysis. And I work heavy with the finance people because if it's going to cost me $750, put it in an AC unit, but I can get $300 additional in rent from the government over the time period, it makes it worth it. So you always have that give and take on every single aspect. And if there's something that just doesn't make sense, I have gotten on the phone with HUD officials before and everybody else, literally I knew them by their first names in a couple towns and stuff and gotten them to pass off or allow um, exemptions, especially on the ADA stuff, you know, ADA is a requirement and that's, you know, your cost of ADA renovation on a building that you bought from, you know, 1916, 1910 which we do own still, um, but you try to, you, you buy that, <laughs> you've got some challenges, you know, and not everything gets to be grandfathered in. So, you know, there's, 
ADA. And, you know, Dwayne, I think, really knows this quite a bit. He's probably, he's purchased properties. So, well, I was yeah, just going to say, I was just going to say, you're kind of my spirit animal. I'm always the bearer of bad news. My, and uh, I do have a couple questions for you, George, because we haven't met before. And everything you're saying, I was kind of smirking or uh, thinking of, you know, a sewer backup, you know, like some of the stuff that we've seen, uh, because same, same type of environment for us. You know, we specialize in affordable housing. Well, <clears throat> those are not usually built in 1990 or 2000. You know, they're 1919. We've got, uh, I, I think our oldest property is 1940 something. So there are there are definitely uh, issues there, but just like anything, it's, it's uh, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. So after our first or second time through, we figured out who our team was, what was most important, roof, foundation, and water. Um, when do you, during the due diligence phase, when do you get real granular with that? I know you say you, initially, do you just do an initial walkthrough where you're surveying the, the main things? Like the way I think the first time, I usually walk through at least twice um, before acquisition at, at, at a minimum. <clears throat> the first time I'm looking roof foundation and then sewers, we have our own team that comes in and, and scopes the lines mm -hmm. there. Um, and then after that, then, then I personally get more granular with uh, looking at HVAC, the interiors, like, like you said, the, the cosmetic things. When do you get real granular and, and detailed with, with everything? Or is, is that not a, a major uh, issue with some of the, the scope of some of the projects that you're dealing with. I mean, some of these, you know, huge projects, I find it hard to believe that you're walking every single unit and checking out the, the carpet and paint on every single, but tell me, you know, because we have properties of 20 to 70 units. So we're small, you know, small beans compared to you guys, but tell me how that looks for you during that phase. Well, it's like you said, your, your initial walkthrough, you're, you're looking at the big picture. And you're looking at here's the major dollars, you know, and you go back and you talk to, you know, uh, whoever you, in your case, you're, you're doing, you know, the purchase of it. Okay. I'm going to have to do an expenditure of whatever, half a million dollars to fix this. I know that up front. Right. Um, and you know, and you basically have your own knowledge of what you want to do on the cosmetic side. So that is already a built-in cost. You know, I'm going to do, you know, carpeting this, this, and this, the unit stuff. Like I said, the cosmetic stuff doesn't bother me. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's more the major. And once that hurdle is passed and the finance people go, okay, this still makes sense. You know, we're still going to buy it, you know? Okay. At that point, once we get into the renovation, then I'll start to get granular with what needs to get done. I walk as many units as I possibly can get into. Of course, if you don't own them yet, they don't, they usually want to show you the best units and the ones not having the problems. So you're just going to have to assume that's what you're seeing. So it's not that difficult. It's everything behind the wall that becomes the problems and it's everything sure. on the ground that becomes the problems. Yeah. So, and and, and I'm that, not just shooting holes and, Oh, we need to fix this. We need to fix this as a creative. Yeah. I'm also thinking like, uh, what was the one deal? Um, there was a basket. No, I'm sorry, an old swimming pool that was not functioning anymore. And we decided we were going to backfill that 
it was already fenced. It was perfect. Backfilled it and made it a, a little dog park, you know, for, for people. Mm-hmm. So a value add type of thing. Do you ever look at, at that component of, of things? Also? Yeah, that's, that is definitely uh, something we look at because that's amenities are definitely um, reimbursable usually by, you know, whatever government yeah. agency is funding the project or going through it. The more amenities you get or commit to, you get dollars for that, you know, the common area stuff. So I'm assuming that, you know, if you did buy affordable, that it might've been a mixture. That was the best way to do it because the swimming pool in Ohio is not functional for, you know, six, seven months out of the year. So that made no sense. You put in a dog park or something like that, or do, you know, you come up with something that gets you that additional funding and it's an amenity, but it also works for the property, you know, swimming pool, the maintenance costs, you can uh, analyze and go through, I know what things cost to maintain. I know the, like you said, uh, you know, heating, Ohio heating is is huge. So you have to keep the heat on all the time, you know? Right. So you want to set up maintenance contracts. You want all that covered to avoid the long-term headache. Now, again, you also put life expectancy on everything. Your heating system's got a good 10 years. We're good. We can take care of, you know, we can do this by maintenance. We can get this thing limped along for 10 years, but 10 years from now, we know we're going to have to throw some, start throwing serious money at this. And, yeah. you know, the same thing with your roofs or anything else. There's stuff you can get by with now and you can do things on it. Uh, other things you just have to uh, plan for, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I'm sure, you know, that's happened and you understand that. And how do I determine what gets what I'm big on maintenance? I'm big on maintaining things. It, it, it's it, ultimately it comes down to the PNL and what you want to do and how you want to do it. But I always look at the long term. If you don't yeah. want to maintain it, you know it's like not changing the oil in your car. Yeah, you know you don't want to change it. You want to save fifty bucks, hundred bucks, you know, every four months. But you know, year and a half from now, your engine's going to blow up. So yeah, yeah, you you just have to view things that way. You know, on the the asset managers, you know, hate me for that. Yep. You got a plan for this. Yep. You got to do this. You know, they just look at taxes, insurance, this, this, and this. I go, Nope. Now you have to add all this in, you know? And yeah. so, you know, asset managers and I always go back and forth. So it's a problem. Two, two other <laughs> questions on the due diligence phase. One, um, how do you, you mentioned, obviously you're in multiple States. How do you know what, Arizona dictates versus California versus Ohio. Is there, you said it's different from state to state. Are there certain entities that you go to, to get, you know, yep. those guidelines? And then, yeah, and then my second, I'm sorry. And then my second question is what's the, what's the, again, because of the scope of what you're doing, have you, is there, has there ever been anything that you've missed or because of the scope of things that ended up costing you more? And what was that and, and how did you, you know, remedy that moving forward so that you don't continue to pay that tuition or, or maybe, you know, forget to look for X, Y, and Z? Well, I'm lucky that Andrea does a lot of the initial due diligence in different states and she kind of identifies, you know, this is what this state's going to require. I look more, I, I look more at the, the code, recent code, building codes, uh, different things, you know, that that have passed through the legislature. She knows within that financing structure, 
okay, this is what the lender and HUD are going to require. You have to do this, you know, and that's fine. You know, and it's different for every project because they look at every project differently. So it's hard, you know, the statewide thing is usually pretty easy uh, for me. The county, I can get into the county. I can get into all that stuff. I deal with architects, um, you know, and they can assist in all the different areas. I don't pretend to know every single building code in every single state, but I we do hire architects and engineers that have my back in that regard and say, listen, you're going to get tagged for this, this, and this. So they're all part of my upfront due diligence. I don't pretend to know, you know, an architect's job or an engineer's job, you know. Sure. Those guys know what they're doing they'll talk and if you have relationships with them they don't charge you a lot to give you information you know we try to use the same architects and engineers you know if they're licensed in multiple states which they are so these guys will have our back you know and they'll tell us you know so relationships are huge uh especially with the different cities and different people andrea works hard she has relationships with a lot of the lenders out there she knows, you know, she'll sit there and tell me they're going to look for this. You got it, you know, and it's like, oh, crap. So, There's so, much, <laughs> that's so true. There's so much to look out for, especially, I, I mean, I remember when, when you were working on a property walkthrough, I think you were looking at the initial REAC report. And then, I mean, can you touch base a little bit about what that is with the, with everybody out there? What's REAC and pre-REAC? And, and those are... HUD requirements as well, not just state Correct. or county. Yeah, REAC um, is basically HUD will go in and they'll do an inspection. Um, they also do a, what's more they uh, what's called a more inspection, which they look at all the paperwork, uh, and then they do a REAC, which is basically the physical building. Uh, it can be very extensive. It's very um, how should I put it um, without being politically incorrect gut wrenching gut wrenching <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 You're very the people that do it don't have any knowledge of what they're looking at you know they'll write down and mark you off for paint peeling or you know there's stains on the carpet you know well you can't control that and you can't clean up every single stain but they'll mark you off for it though it's it's a difficult thing i had my last react report um, we did a walkthrough. There's literally 175 items on it. This is my, this is the pre-react walk. And looking at every single item, yeah, we can control a lot of it, but we can't control everything. A lot of it's, you know, whatever residents you happen to have, uh, which you can't control if they, you know, qualify, they may do something to the property that is not exactly the greatest thing in the world. But if you don't have knowledge of it, people don't report things. People are, you know, affordable housing is a very difficult situation because there's a lot of fear uh, with the residents. And what I mean by that is they're afraid to report that something's deficient, but we can't fix it if we don't know about it. And that's one of my big frustrations is you have to get that trust factor from the residents. You know, some of these people are, you know, you know they have a lot of you know therapeutic things happening doctors coming in and all this stuff and they just don't know to say something you know it's it's not that we want to be a or anybody wants to be a bad landlord but you know it's hard to fix what you don't know and it's getting that trust factor in there and 
walking it every so often. I mean, when I initially walk a project for a renovation, I walk every single unit, every single one. And there's people that are afraid. They don't want you to come in. They don't want you to see something. And they have to understand, I'm not there to be critical of anything they've done or anything that's happened or anything. there. I'm here to fix everything. And once I get their trust, I go to the town hall meetings. We set up town hall meetings ahead of time. I'm there and I'll sit there, you know, till nine o'clock at night and answer questions from residents, you know, and a lot of times, like I said, we do an occupied renovation. These residents start out angry. And, and my job is to say, listen, you're going to get a lot angrier with me and you're going to be mad at me during this entire process. At the end, you'll thank me, you know, or at least I hope you will. But, you know, the process of anything, you know, I just had my house painted, you know, and for six days, I had workmen all over my property looking in every window and doing this, this and this. Well, yeah, it's frustrating and it's hard and there's a lot of things you got to do. But once it's over with, it's beautiful. You know, I can't wave a magic wand and have it done. So I tell them, I explain to them, this is what we're going to do your kitchen. This is what your first day is going to look like. This is what your second day is going to look like. This is what going to happen on the third day. You know, you will have a bathroom, you know, but the shower is going to get done that day. You're not going to be able to shower. Please plan for it. And it's just setting up on a daily schedule so they know what's going to happen. They still might not like it, but they'll know what's going to happen. A lot of these people have animals, service animals that, you know, want to, you know, keep them. We set up an area for them outside of, you know, the apartment, a common area or whatever. They can go watch TV, stay with a friend or whatever during the day. But every night they can go back in to their unit. One thing I'm really proud of is we had, you know, everybody knows about COVID and the lockdown. We had six, seven projects going on during the height of COVID. Finished every single one on time and on budget. How do I do that with occupied units? I'm telling you. That's an entire different podcast for, and I hope I never have to do it again. But I had building departments, health departments. I I literally lived on the road and meeting with everybody. You know, it was unbelievable what happened in the inspections. But I did it in Seattle, did it in Denver. Where else did we do it? Ah, oh, two cities in Denver. We did it in Denver. I think it was Utah as well. Did we start Utah at that time? Was at the tail end in Utah, so Utah wasn't as bad. It was a lot. I mean, we had to set up um, signage to tell people, like the contractors, these are the COVID instructions. There's just so so many parties that had to be touched during a full-scale renovation. I mean, it's massive what we we had to do. But that's what's amazing about this whole process is that you know how to merge make people work together in that process. It's not just the tenants, but also the handymen, any contractors, the city. I mean, how, how are, how do you, are you able to manage all that? <laughs> well, Andrea and I were to tell you how we did it in Polesville. We had a property. It was a senior property and we finished that property, got it done. Not a single case of COVID or anything on the property. This is elderly. This is all senior housing. The city council set us up for an interview that was with, you know, remote. We did it from our office here to the city of Polesville in Washington. How did you do this? Explain this process, you know, and we're on with the city council like two or three hours because, you know, it was failing everywhere. And I ran through the whole, everything we set up as far as prep goes, 
and you know what we did how we followed up on everything everything that it was very complex but we did that in multiple states and multiple cities and we, you know we got incredible i don't know gratitude or you know accolades for it but it was a lot of work i mean early in the morning late at night so like i said we were on that night, I think we ended up leaving the office like at 1030 at night by the time we were done. Yeah, it was it's... pretty late. I mean, <laughs> I think well, what we're most curious about is not just how you do it, but also once we've stabilized these assets, once we've actually fully renovated them, lease them up, work with the project managers, how what is your role when it comes to post, like right when we're about to sell the property after we've stabilized it? Do you work with um, like maintenance or to, in order for upkeep or do you work with the city or property or the vendors to be able to prepare for a sale? Well, we, yeah, what we have to do is make sure they understand what was done. And this is usually the post renovation part of it. And once it goes to stabilization, it's usually a different management to, uh, company or different um, ownership or whatever's, you know, taking care of it at that point. But once we hit stabilization, it, it's my job to go out and explain to them everything we did. And Dane might, you know, understand this. There's, you know, we do, you know, 12, 13, 14 story buildings and the plumbing in there have what they call, they have valves throughout the building uh, in these, in these structures. Well, valves freeze, you know, so we go in and we replace a lot of these valves and I'm talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of plumbing stuff, but you know, it's, it's teaching them, simple things what what a maintenance guy will do is i have a leak i'm shutting the water off to the building no you have a leak in this unit here's the isolation valve it's located behind this panel in this hallway and you can shut three units down not the entire building drain the system then refill it which as you know is a cost i mean that is a huge you know because unaffordable Water's paid for by the ownership. You know, a lot of times the, you know, electrical is paid by the ownership. So anytime you decide you have to shut everything down and drain it, it's money and it's not cheap. It's not just the fixing of the one leak. So it's making them understand what we did to the systems within their building. You know, uh, same thing with a boiler. If it goes down, there's isolation valves. You know, it, we replace those. If it's never been replaced, sometimes that valve will break or crack because they need to be exercised every six months. So I also have a maintenance program that I set up for every single property for everything I touched. This is what you need to do. I did everything. You have central air. I've got everything here, but if you're not going to change the filters for the entire year work, you know, you're screwed. You know, it's basic, it's basic stuff, but it doesn't happen. But if you set up a checklist and you set up a system, you know, we have, what we call, you know, a happy ecosystem, which is a generalized system that, you know, is one of our management companies, uh, uh, you know, tools they use, but they schedule in the maintenance. Okay. Did you change the filter out? Did you do this? You know, did you exercise the, you know, the shutoff valves on the toilet, you know, to make sure that you can do that when there is a leak or it does need replacement. There's all the minutia that gets into it. And to your point, yeah, it gets very detailed after the fact of when you're done because if you walk away from it you can't expect anyone to have the same knowledge you do because you physically 
were in there and you did it, the service managers change. They, you know, move on and it's, it, you've got to have at least a centralized place for this information. And then you have to take the time. Sorry, but everything takes time. And walking with a, you know, a service manager can save you a ton of money to show them, hey, this is what you do. And when I go out to a property, I am asking for their help. I'm trying to get on the same level as whoever's there. I may know how to build a building or a multiple story building, but I'm with the service manager and I want to sit there and I want him on my side. So I ask him, you know, hey, what do you do for this? Or what if we try this? I don't ever go in there and tell them what to do. I never tell anybody what to do. I ask them, well, how do you do it? And then I, you know, try to get them on my side if it's something I don't agree with. It's a matter of, well, have you thought about, can we do it this way? You know, or will this help you out if we do it like this? Or um, about it, uh, the biggest part is to get everybody that you work with on your side or have them coming up to the way you're thinking without telling them how to think. So we call it playing good cop, bad cop, and you're really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If somebody needs, I go, uh, whenever, you know, our service team and stuff like that's out there and they're trying to get something done, it's like, hey, just tell them, you know, make me the bad guy. No problem. Yeah. Use my name, throw it out there. I'll be the bad guy. I'm good. I'm good at that. So, And you, you have to have that sometimes. And that's just to help create a team. And, you know, I don't mind being the bad guy for anything. Um, it's, it's just a matter of trying. We just want to get to the same result run it officially, make sure the residents are comfortable. This is what we need to do. And, you know, it's as simple as that. Getting to that point is not simple, but it is as simple as that. Comfortable environment, good environment for the residents, and, you know, to make the unit, you know, function properly. And, you know, the asset manager, get them off my back. I got to show them, okay, we're doing well. Because <laughs> the first thing I get is a PL saying, why is this not making, you know, whatever. And it's like, and I can usually, it takes me about maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I'll go through the whole PL and I'll tell them exactly what the problems are. So, and then I send it back to them. It's like, you need to fix this, this, and this. And it's not necessarily a repair. It's, um, you know, the smoke detector wasn't working. We called somebody out. Guys, the slave detector is a battery operated thing. Change the batteries. You don't need to spend 200 bucks for somebody to come out to change the batteries, you know? And I found that on a lot of properties, it's they just make a service call. It's not a service call, service manager can do it. I do it in my house, <laughs> so. Yeah, the communication piece, I can't even imagine just uh, all the properties nationwide and knowing where shutoff valves are, communicating with servicemen. I can't imagine the enormity of, of how that could be. Um, and and I, I can tell that you're probably a father if you're used to being the bad guy. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I've, yep. got, I've got four kids, uh, and at any one time, I'm usually the bad guy for at least two of them. So There you go. <laughs> You have to, you have to be. They'll appreciate it though when they start. You know, when they're 20, 20 years old, twenty five years old. Oh, if, dad kept me on the straight and narrow. They'll appreciate it then. Right now, you're just going to be the bad guy. So just I, tell them. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if, if they're still talking to me at that point. But oh, they will. <laughs> they will. They, they will. Because I mean, they want money. Is that why? <laughs> nope. 
my 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 daughter's very successful. My son is, and then when they were young, though, I was on their ass. So and just dumb, you know, it's yeah. dumb stuff, yeah. you know, and it's I, you know, it's yeah. simple, you know. You know, when you're yeah. as old as I am, you can tell me what to do. That's it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's never going to happen. So, Kent, we need to bring uh, George back on just so we can do uh, parenting 101 for what you can expect. Yeah, I know. <laughs> my well, my daughter's a practicing vet in Connecticut, and my son works for some big computer design company. And I'm, I'll be straight honest with you guys. You know, as old as I am. I am not the greatest on computers and I, you know, <laughs> I, I get, and I have no problem with, you know, reading emails. I'll get up, you know, at the peak, hundred, 150 emails a day. And, you know, a lot of them are just, you know, some things, you know, that I'll, they just want me aware of and other things, you know, it's, you got to put out a fire and, sure. and you just, you jump on those, you go through it and, you know, that's just what happens in this kind of day and age. It's easier to yeah. send an email, you know, but, a lot of times I'll get on the phone and talk to people. And yeah. And a little bit old. Was, yeah. And that's what I was alluding to. I, I can't imagine the amount of communication that you're doing, you know, on a daily basis. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And it's well, not just me. It's, you gotta, you gotta realize you gotta rely on the people that work with you. Andrea, there's, you know, finance people. I, I direct stuff to the people that know the answers. You know, there's a lot of sure. stuff I have to do, but there's a lot of stuff that comes in and it's like, you know, I'll tell Andrea, it's like, hey, can you take care of this or handle this? Because I have no clue what they're talking about. <laughs> I don't know why they think it's me. So, you know, you know, you can't be expert in everything and you have yeah. to defer. You have to really divert, defer and delegate if you want to be successful and if you want to do volume. If you just want yeah. to own one property, yeah, you can do everything. You know, yeah. if you want to own 20, you, you're going to have to, you know, trust some people. And that's what I do. To to kind of turn the scale, we've we've talked on you know the due diligence piece, the acquisition piece. If and I'm assuming you've done full scale renos. Um, what does that look like? Is there a a formula or an average? Like, what are your typical costs per unit? Is that maybe if that's how you look at it? Um, and what does that look like in terms of you know your uh, acceptable pricing per unit, if, if that's what you look at. Um, what does the lender need uh, from you uh, to, to get those funds? And then once the renovation, the, the, the full-scale renovation is, is underway, what does that communication with the lender look like? Uh, and, and what types of things do they need and in, 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 in what timelines? Uh, because I, I'm assuming that could be a pretty an enormous task, um, especially if you're not keep it, kicking people out of their apartments and you're having to, to do right. large renovations with them in-house. Well, first we look at the scope of work and what we've committed to and what we want to do. And, you know, it's usually a full scale. Everything's touched within the, the unit itself. Our spreadsheets are standard Excel spreadsheets, but they're probably two to 300 lines with multiple tabs on it that tie into a main uh, main budget. And I have my own tab, which is the construction budget. And I will literally have it down to, you know, uh, replace the angle stops on the toilet, you know, per toilet. It's, you know, whatever, X amount of dollars, depending on what they have, two bedroom, one bedroom, two bath, whatever. But 
it'll get down to that detail. It'll, it'll list every single piece of material that's going in there, the labor associated with it, and, you know, extended it out. So depending on, how shall I put it, um, gingerbread. And what I mean by gingerbread is, you know, you can have a quartz countertop at, you know, two and a half inches, or you can have a quartz or formica countertop at, you know, at three inches. I mean, there's, it's the material cost that is usually the differential within it. It's how high end you go. You know, you can put flooring in, you know, that's, you know, 30 bucks a square, you know, square yard, you know, but do you have to, I mean, you know, what's your plan? Well, no, I can put in a lot less and I can just change it on a turn or change it every five years. And I'm still less than my initial investment. So you have to look at what I term as gingerbread within a, that's what changes uh, something that's, you know, 15, 20, you know, $25,000 a unit and you touch everything, walls, patch them, everything to, you know, you do HVAC, you do whatever in these units, you refurbish the furnace, you know, for that kind of price. And it all depends. Some of our units are only, you know, 550 square feet, you know, some are studios. So it, that price changes, but I can give you an example. When I, you know, worked for uh, AIMCO, you know, we did the penthouses over in, um, at the Palazzo's, which is in a very high, high end part of town. I mean, my cost per unit was $282,000. I had a Italian marble going in. I had Venetian finishes on the walls. You know, there was, you know, drywalls, drywall, and then there's different finish levels. You know, if somebody's going to pound, you know, 15 pictures into it, I don't need the thing to be perfectly level and, you know, square and beautiful and straight. It's what they call a Venetian finish, you know, but, you know, I can go to a level three finish on the wall, you know, patch all the holes, smooth coat it out, paint it because, you know, I'll go in there two months later and I'll have 40 pictures on the walls, <laughs> nail holes everywhere. So it really doesn't matter. So you have to, you have to judge stuff like, like that. It's all, it's all about, um, it's the cost of material as opposed to actually putting the material up, you know, a countertop. It's the same to put whatever you want in, you know, it does, doesn't matter. It's the material cost. It's the cabinets, you know, you want real wood, you want, you know, press wood, you want, what do you want? You know, the cabinets are the same thing, you know, your cost of material. Nowadays, it's really bad just because of the supply chains is very difficult right now. And doing construction in this time frame is difficult. I've had to change um, suppliers uh, mid-project get a different cabinetry because the original supplier couldn't get it in, you know, and there's, you get nailed for an upcharge because you're rushing because you want to keep the schedule. You want to keep the project on schedule. I mean, I've got an eight day term, you know, first day I go in and I, you know, move everything down and I demo in the living room or whatever it may be. However, we phase it out. Person comes back there, their stuff's all packaged up, uh, boxed up. And, uh, you know, we move it from room to room and finish each room as we need to. But, by day eight, the unit is going back brand new, paint, walls done, ceilings, all the codes, you know, hardware's changed, new counters, new flooring, new everything, bathrooms, you know, new toilets, everything in the bathroom. If the, you know, shower's bad, you know, we replace the shower, tear it in. And it may be as something as simple as an insert, which doesn't take a lot, you know. In some cases, we have to tear it out because the plumbing's bad, you know, and it may not add a day to it. So like I said, and all that happens when I do my hundred percent walkthrough, when I do a hundred percent walkthrough, that's we've already bought the building. We're going to renovate it. 
And then I go look at every single unit and then I make notes. I guess I could put in a little bit of, of a side note here because I mean, before we used to have, what is it? 20, 25,000 average per unit mm -hmm. for a full scale renovation. But ever since COVID happened and, you know, like you said, you're changing suppliers. What would you say would be the average we've seen per unit? About 35,000 35, per unit. Yeah. And that's a full scale renovation. Full yeah, scale, that's, that's everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's again, material costs are up 20, 25, 30%. It, it hurts. It's just not, you know, and the labor also has gone up. It's, it's very, very, it's a very, how shall I say it, volatile industry right now uh, in different parts of the country, especially. Uh, in New York, I know they're charging material markups at 200%, the supplier. They're marking up 200% in New York right now. I had a contractor call me up and complaining. He's like, what do you want me to do about it? I don't make it. <laughs> you know, he just had a complaint and vent. I go, yeah, and that, that hurts, and it hurts everything. Uh, it hurts your ability to do renovations. It hurts your ability, you know, to get a good, you know, the best or the highest end product in there. You, you know, sometimes you have to do compromises up front and go, I can't do a quartz countertop. You know, I'm, I have to go with something else. You know, I have to go with the laminate. And then, yeah, you know, different things like that require different approvals. You know, so it happens. It happens. Unforeseen stuff. I know we haven't talked about that. Unforeseen stuff are city comes in and decides they want your emergency pool stations moved because they don't like where the position is of them, you know, and those are things you can fight and discuss with, you know, and discuss with, you know, different entities within there. And it usually depends on the inspector. I can usually get beyond the basic stuff. Usually I give into them if it's, you know, something stupid that doesn't cost me a lot of money. But if they start to get out of control, I have to have conversations and go, really, what what is this game and what does this do? Uh, for the most part, though, most of the inspectors are reasonable. They're regular guys. They're not there to, you know, if the city approved it up front, they're 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 out, they're pretty good. I I can't say I really like dealing with the inspectors rather than the city. So that's a whole different animal. <laughs> it's hard to stay within budget. <laughs> yes. And then how exhausted are you after walking every single unit? I've been there and done that. And the amount of mileage that I put on and the, the amount of stairs that I walk. And uh, I, I told my brother, who's my business partner, the one day I'm like, man, I'm freaking exhausted. It was 70, the 76 unit we did. I didn't get all 76 in one day, obviously, but I think it was over the span of two days. <laughs> I'm a workout freak. I'm like, man, I'm exhausted. I'm just <laughs> it's, go it's going up those steps. Try, try to do it on a 12-story building, you know, and you do it over two days. And you don't take the elevator because you want to see the hallways and everything and all the, you know, so you walk across, go up the other <laughs> stairs, go this way, go up the stairs. It's And you do that, you know, multiple times. It's, yeah, it's tiring. You know, I, I used to have a Fitbit. I go, I don't even want to look at that anymore. I'm not done with that. <laughs> <laughs> so... No, it is. It is. Uh, but it's necessary you, to, to put your eyes on it is. I know everything this day and age is all, you know, technical. They, you know, everything is done online. They send pictures, but it doesn't it's not like seeing it in person and looking at it. You know, pictures only show you what the person wants to send you. You know, you have to 
you have to go live it. And that's what they count on me for. Go there, you know, because, you know, ownership doesn't walk every single unit here. You know, when they want to buy a building or, you know, the finance people or nobody does. But that's what they rely on me to. You go and walk every single unit. And they don't ever tell me to, but I do. So I know up front what's going to happen. And I know, I, I know everything. And, you know, you have to. It's just part of the part of the job. And yes, I do get tired. <laughs> I had knee surgery like five months ago just because, you know, I was running and I tore the cartilage in my right knee and I had to have knee surgery and I couldn't even fly for a couple months. So I had to wait and then uh, walk a building because I also walk, uh, you know, punch list. I have a, a, a team from the management company that's on site, but I can't walk every unit, but I go out every week and look at them and go through them and double check things. So uh, it's just a follow-up. It's part of the job. I, I'm not, uh, you know, the computer whiz or the computer expert. But if you ask me about a project, I can tell you. I know it. I've seen it. I know exactly what the problem is. Somebody bring it up to me. Hey, I saw this. Yep, know what it is. Don't worry about it. It's like, got it. And, you know, just because I know I've seen it. So. Yeah, for sure. I will so say Okay. What the lender what the lender requires um, could be very intricate. You know, I've worked with George on these projects where we figure out from the lender what are the requirements in terms of they want the AIA contract signed, they want warranties, they want a full renovation schedule, builders risk insurance. I mean, George, are you <laughs> are you the go-to guy for that all the the checklist of items that they require? Yep. Usually I've got to sign off on it and everything that, you know, whatever I've provided, uh, you know, the warranties are a big thing, you know, but we get all those and, you know, we have to provide that to the management companies. The warranties are different. Uh, they're usually based on substantial completion unless it's, you know, a system thing. If I replaced a hot water heater or I replaced, you know, a compressor for AC, you know, it's got a five-year warranty. You know, there's, you know, sometimes components, a lot of the times on the systems have different warranty periods and just the knowledge of that can save the property money. And from a lender standpoint, you know, they, they have, you know, their criteria as far as I need this documentation or this, it's, it's not a problem. We, we always take that into account when we do it. Um, and if I, you know, miss something, Andrea say, Hey, the lender's asking for this, this, and this, you know, you know, and I'll go back and dig and I'll find it. And it's like, yeah, I got it. You know, my, my files are usually, hundreds of megabytes long and you know it's just you know material specifications are huge and everywhere you know they'll, they'll ask for that you know what is what is the counter made out of you know because it's sometimes you the requirement it has to be a non-porous you know solid surface minimum of three uh you know three centimeters thick okay you know and i'll send them the material spec or do this and uh Different cabinetries have to have the different labels inside of it. You have to be opening it up. You can't take those labels off. A lot of people do, but not as ownership we don't. So I take pictures of those labels so I can sit there and say, yeah, see, this is a certified, this is what it's made out of. Because if you get stuff from overseas, sometimes it has some formaldehyde content in it. You can't, all that's gotta be tested and done separately. When it gets here, you have to make sure you have that testing requirement and all that. So it's, it can be intricate. It can be. It's a lot of and, documentation. And George, maybe I'll jump in there and just make sure the, the audience understands. Are you talking about documenting all of these um, 
sorry for the background noise. Uh, are you talking <laughs> about documenting all of these items because you need to get draw or you need to provide evidence that, hey, when you apply for financing, you were going to use these materials. And then after the fact, you had to get reimbursed or get the construction draws, right? To, right. to confirm you're doing what you said you were going to do in the beginning. Right. Well, yeah, on, on the draws, every draw is, um, how shall I say, it's done monthly. It's usually done with myself in the bank, the representative, the third party representative that I have, that I walk with. I'll set up a time and we'll walk the scope. As far as, you know, warranties and stuff like that, they'll ask for it, you know, as the stuff completes. Uh, substantial completion, like I said, is usually the dates used when warranties take effect. And, um, so the banks will ask for different things and they'll usually up front, we already have all the material specs. I, I have to approve them. It's usually about 150 pages, 160 pages um, long of the material specs. And I approve that before we start construction. And then that is given to the lenders and everybody. And, you know, they look at it, you know, uh, honestly, I don't think anyone's ever read it other than me, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure that they just hand it to me. Is this approved? I go through it. Yeah, it's approved. And, you know, so uh, the draws are interesting. The third party, some guys are really good. They know their shit. They're, excuse me, I'm sorry for that. Um, they know their stuff. Uh, they're very good. They understand construction. They understand material installations, and they're very good. Some, I question, you know, why I'm there with them you know, type of thing. It's, they have no clue what's going on. They don't care, you know, and okay. You know, so it's different. It's, it's different across the board. And if you just keep yourself consistent, provide all the information, you do it the same way with everyone. You usually don't have a problem. I've never had a problem. So, or an issue with anything. No, that's extremely helpful. And Maybe I'll steal one question from the other guys is like, uh, we had one of the live audience members that's listening to you right now saying like, hey, you are offering a ton of valuable information here. So first of all, thank you. Um, they were wondering, like, what does your team actually look like? Because earlier we talked about um, maintenance, right? How do you actually keep track of things actually being done? So people aren't just checking the box, check the box, but they're actually doing what they said they were going to do. And maybe we can start this question off with just like, help us understand like, what does your team actually look like? Do you have separate people helping you out on the construction side and on the asset management side? Like how do you work between yeah, those groups and all those functionalities and responsibilities? Right, it, it, it is separate, it's separate entities. It's an operating building as opposed to under construction. So, you know, there's superintendents, you know, that are part of the construction team that during the construction, uh, a lot of times the asset managers and the finance people don't get involved once construction starts. I own it at that point. So, you know, there's, there's facilities, people, we keep them in the loop. We show them what they're doing, but at that point, they're not doing anything for us. So once we've completed the asset or gotten it done and the asset management, the finance people and everything, we've closed it out. We've done the closeout with the banks and the asset um, is now part of you know, the profitability statements and all that, that's different. That that goes to the asset managers. Andrea is involved in that. Uh, P&Ls, as long as they stay in line and there's not a big issue with it, I don't usually see them or have to review them. I only get it when there's a problem, when for some reason profitability is not being made 
and it should be. And, you know, we just did this whole thing. Why are we spending X amount of dollars or this? And they ask us, they'll ask me what's going on or what's happening. And every PL is different. Um, you know, I'll give you a quick example. You know, gas at one of our properties uh, in California was exceeding the cost of electrical. You know, and, you know, we paid for both at that property. And the gas costs were more than that. Well, natural gas is a lot cheaper. How is that possible? Well, I found out that it's got a pool. I know it had a pool, but they're heating it with a gas heater. And they have to keep it at a certain temperature, which is required. Okay. So the gas was like huge. So all I did was say, okay, got a solar company, put a solar panels in there, hooked it up to an electric heater and, you know, eliminated the cost of the gas way down and the supplemental of the, you know, the system, the solar panels, you know, basically paid for heating the pool with an electric heater. So it's just, nobody looked at that. Nobody thought about it. It's like, yeah, here's your problem. It took me about 15 minutes. This is a problem. <laughs> so, can, can oh, okay, thanks. Can, can you have your wife edit this and just drop like fire from the, the ceiling? <laughs> you know, I, I had, we had a structural, um, there was another property that uh, had termites and it was, um, the property got a bit of like $800,000. You got to replace all the rafters and all the ceilings and you have to do all this stuff. I go, no. Time out, you know, ownership was like, oh, what's going on? What happened? We got all this time out, went there, grabbed a structural engineer, went up into every single building into the rafters and go, yeah, we just have to replace this one, this one, and this one, do a treatment on this. I think it cost us like when we were done about $15,000, everything was solved. It's like treat it, do this because you get extraordinary bids from contractors. Oh, I just got to replace it all. No, you don't really have to, you know, a call came in the other day. Oh, my building's falling down. It's going to collapse on this one side. And this was from somebody on the property. Send me a picture. I go, no, your door frames eat, is eaten out. It's your building's not going to collapse. I'll have a guy out there tomorrow. So I just called up the maintenance people and said, oh, you're here. Call the carpenter, film the ground, replace the door frame on this entrance. It's like, okay. You know, it's, you know, I can't react like other people react. You know, they, you'll get the reaction of, oh my God, the sky is falling. And I have to sit there and go, okay, I'll tell you, give me a few minutes and I'll tell you if really the sky's falling or not. And just, it's just what, you know, you have to do. You can't, you can't react to anybody on site right away. You have to think about it, look at it and say, okay, this is what really is happening. And it's hard, you know, it's, you know, people ask you to get as excited as they do. It's like, no, I've never seen anything I can't fix. It's construction. It all can be fixed unless you have to deal with the city. I have a property in, okay, I won't say the city, um, but I do have a property there that had a fire and the building had to be destroyed, demolished, not a big one. It's been in the permit process now for two and a half, three years. Can't get permits to do it. Well, the city asked for, I want an easement down the back. Okay, we'll give it to you for an alleyway. Then I have to redesign my whole building. You know, the insurance carrier is like losing their mind because they're footing the bill 
and it happened before COVID, and then all the costs went up 20%, 25%, and they're on the hook for that. So, you know, you're navigating the insurance carrier here in ownership, and you're trying to work with the city to get the damn thing done. So it's, those are the frustrating things that, you know, drive me up a wall, because I never say no to them. Like, I want to get this thing built. I want to rebuild it. Insurance is paying for it. Guys, come on. It's not that difficult. So... Wow, George. So you are worth a billion bucks and more, and then some, dude. You you do construction. You do all this planning. Well, I deal with all the insurance. Strategy. Yeah, I deal with the insurance carriers. I do all that stuff. So. Babysitting. And you're, you're <laughs> and your therapist. Oh, your mediator, dude. <laughs> what do you not do, man? I, I mean, hey, you hinted along this, and I know we're getting towards the end of this, and so we got to start wrapping up. But we we always ask this question to everybody that comes onto the podcast, and because. We know affordable housing is hard to solve for, but we believe if we get enough perspectives from everyone, we'll eventually figure out how to solve this as as a group. So, George, why do you think like affordable housing, particularly the lack of supply of affordable housing, is like so hard to solve for? Love to hear your thoughts here. Well, it all depends on the part of the country because a lot of the um, conventional housing doesn't convert over to affordable. You know, it's it's going to have to be a ground up scenario unless you know you buy an existing you know affordable housing project and it stays affordable uh, you can convert one but it typically there's not a lot of people willing or have the heart and what i mean by that is your profitability goes way down if you have the heart to take a conventional property and convert it to affordable you lose a lot of money and there's not a lot of people out here that have that heart you know in them that being said um, there's a lot of obstacles to affordable housing as much as every single government agency wants to say, yes, we want to do it. We want to build it. We want this. I mean, the city of LA, there's development projects for a hundred units of affordable housing that have been in the development stage with the cities for five years, five years, and they still haven't even broken ground. So yeah, it's, it's, it's the bureaucracy of, you know, litigation, everything involved in it. You know, if you're going into the area that the neighborhood doesn't want and you're exceeding 50 units, they're allowed to contest it. And there's a two year period. There's it's, it's the bureaucracy that holds up affordable housing more than anything as far as building new. And it, it is very frustrating. It's difficult. That's not to say they don't have their, you know, reasons or that, but um, that's what I feel is because I can build in a year, year and a half, I can build a big ass, huge complex, but I can't get approval to do that. And that's the difficult thing. And I, I hate to say it until we can get better at streamlining the process. It's, it's just going to be like that. And um it's frustrating because I tell you, you have to have a good heart if you want to do affordable as an owner. You honestly do because, you know, there's not like a ton of rewards on it. It's, you know, it's limited. What you can get in rents limited. What you can do is limited. Uh, you have to keep it up. You, you have to have a good heart and you have to be willing to do it. And, you know, fortunately here, our ownership, you know, they have a really big heart and they want to make, you know, the first thing is, you know, the residents are first. And that's what you have to have, you know, to make this stuff work. 
you know, is this going to be good for the residents? You know, if one of our owners walked into one of our buildings and they didn't like what I was doing. They'd be in my office in a heartbeat and I would understand why, you know, this needs to get fixed. So, but well, Joe, uh, I mean, George, I mean, thank you. I said this in the beginning, but thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you guys do without people like you. Uh, I would have never had an affordable housing unit to kind of grow up in. Um, I, I think I can speak for a lot of people. You are changing lives. I would not become the person that I am today starting a podcast about affordable housing without folks like you with great hearts. So seriously, from the bottom of my heart and my family's heart, like, thank you guys so much. Really, really appreciate it. Um, hey, George, for if sure. people want to get in touch with you, where can they well, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, to learn more about you? I'm not a big social media person. I just don't have time. I'm not on anything but LinkedIn. So if you if somebody wants to shoot me a question or they want to get in touch with me, just look me up, George Splowski on LinkedIn. There's only one George Splowski on LinkedIn. So, <laughs> so go ahead. Because <laughs> you're a me. legend. <laughs> <That's why. laughs> so, and, you know, I, I don't accept, you know, only if I can, you know, help the person, talk to the person, you know, if I accept, you know, I don't go through and like accept, you know, a thousand different people. It's like, because I truly will go in and check it and I truly will answer people on it, you know, if they have a question or if they have issues. So I don't, you know, I don't do the big social media stuff. You'll never find me on the social media. So don't even have an account on social media. LinkedIn's it. So, well, hey, this right. has been an amazing episode, George. We were so fortunate and so happy to have you on there. Like I was telling you all the weeks leading up to this, we were so excited. And Andrea and Dane, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you, everybody. Hopefully, George, we'll get you back on sometime eventually. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.